0: Let us pray. Holy God, as we approach your word, make our spirits quiet, make our minds attentive, make our hearts malleable, and make our lives fruitful. Amen. Our second reading is a continuation of the first. We start at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Let us Listen together for God's word to us. My brothers and sisters, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than their neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride, for all must carry their own loads. Those who are taught the word must share in all good things with their teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary. In doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We come to the end today of our series on Galatians and Paul is, is wrapping up his argument. So I think it's helpful for us to take a look at the argument as a whole and what he has been trying to convey to this particularly difficult church. It begins with him making the point that religious observance is not the same thing as living according to the gospel and he transitions in speaking of the gospel to recognizing how hard it was for the apostles themselves to understand that the gospel was always meant to expand beyond the boundaries of Israel to be delivered to be carried to the gentile world that the gentile world the uncircumcised was always meant to be brought in to the family of faith and now now that we've realized this its truth is undeniable But of course the Galatians' problem is that they continue to deny that truth and they do it by their stubborn refusal to let go of the law and to let go of the law's distinctions. But now they have freedom, Paul says. In Christ, they have freedom. Freedom from those distinctions, freedom from the law. We might even say freedom from religion. Paul is not anti-religious. Paul is just keenly aware of the ways that religion can easily be distorted. He's keenly aware of the dangers that religion can pose. Think about Paul's own story. He wasn't always Paul. Before he was Paul, he was, of course, Saul. He described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a leader of the the Jewish people. He was a zealot for the Jewish religion and when an upstart group started claiming a counterfeit Messiah, Saul was the first to raise his hand to go and persecute them and put a stop to that. All in the name of his religion. Then of course he has a conversion experience. Saul becomes Paul and Paul becomes the greatest apostle of the early church who believes this is not only just good news for his own people, but that it is good news for the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul himself is a really interesting case study, because as one person, he embodies the two different types of religious people. There are Saul's out there, and there are Paul's. Or to frame it the way he does here, there are those who pursue the works of the flesh, And there are those who embody the fruit of the Spirit. It may seem a little ironic here that at the end of Paul's letter, when Paul has gone to such great lengths to eliminate the divisions that we imagine exist among us, there's no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer even male and female. And now here we get to the end, and Paul is saying, look, there are two kinds of people those who pursue the works of the flesh and those who embody the fruit of the Spirit. When my wife and I, before we had children, uh, when we got to do things on our own, what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, we would go for drives a lot. And as we were driving around, wherever it was that we lived, I would always be on the lookout and ready to write down The messages on church signs because they were often cute and funny and sometimes really offensive surprisingly true so a couple of my favorites just for some cheap laughs I'll share with you Uh, one of them is dusty bibles dirty lives eternity smoking or non-smoking God shows no partiality but the sign guy does. Go Gators. (laughs) That was actually from Michigan. It said, Go Blue. Uh, But I had to translate it for the hometown crowd here. But my favorite, my favorite, God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. So if you saw my sermon title and you thought, oh boy, this pastor's really creative. I'm not. I borrowed it from some creative church sign out there somewhere that's the wisdom of the larger church at work here but i think that last one about spiritual fruit and religious nuts i think it begins to capture the point that paul is making the spirit of his argument again paul is not anti-religious but the point he wants to make is that religion is not the point so here as he's making his final his his closing argument so to speak to the Galatians he is directing us toward what really is in point of all of this what religion ought to look like is people setting aside one way of life and actively pursuing another paul says it's about setting aside the works of the flesh the pursuit of what the flesh desires. Now, when we hear that, we're, of course, immediately thinking of some of the things that he does, in fact, list early in chapter 5, sexual immorality, debauchery, these sorts of things. But let's not get hung up on that because Paul gives us a long list, which I'll mention in a moment. But it's important to note that the flesh desires lots of things. Flesh desires Power and prestige and achievement. The flesh desires success and recognition and attention. The flesh desires comfort and certainty and control. So, before Paul gets to the fruit of the Spirit, he lists some of the works of the flesh. And as I said, he lists sexual immorality and drunkenness and carousing. I think it would be apostolic malpractice if he didn't at least name those things at the outset of his list. But he goes on because there's more. He mentions idolatry. Idolatry, which is, which is our tendency to scramble our priorities, to treat as of ultimate importance things that are not ultimately very important He mentions sorcery. You might say sorcery is not really a problem that we have to deal with today, but what was sorcery except an attempt to create shortcuts, an attempt to do hard things easily, magically, which is exactly what technology does for us today. Paul mentions enmities, strife, jealousy, Anger, envy, quarrels, dissensions, factions. Now these things we know we struggle with. The life that Christians are called to set aside is defined by all of these things. It's defined by these efforts, by these works of the flesh. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The contrast that Paul is building for us here is that we can live our lives focused on the flesh, on ourselves, on the things which serve our interests, on fulfilling our desires, or We can live lives that bear the fruit of goodness and mutual care, lives that are oriented outward toward others, toward the world, lives that produce richly, abundantly, generously. But here's the thing about religion, the trouble, if you will, with religion, is that religion can be put to use serving either of those ends. Our religion can be put to use serving what Paul calls the works of the flesh, or it can be put to use enabling the fruit of the Spirit. Our religion can bless and baptize our striving and our quarrels and our very worst instincts. And this is what we see in the Galatian church. The Galatians are using their religion as leverage against outsiders. They are using their religion to create a system that grants them exactly what they're looking for, righteousness before God, and then gives them the permission to pull up the ladder behind them to make it harder for others to enter into God's embrace. But our religion can also facilitate fruit-bearing lives, it can lead us to set aside our striving and our quarrels and our very worst instincts. It can help us imagine that there are more important things in life than the things that we usually think are most important. It can inspire us to bear others' burdens and to work for the good of all. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks outlines two categories Of virtue and the first he calls resume virtues these are the kinds of things that we extol in ourselves the kinds of things that play into our own advancement in life that boost our sense of self or our sense of what we are capable of achieving these are the virtues that we would list on our resume things like competence performance dedication excellence and so on The logic of resume virtues, Brooks writes, is a straightforward, utilitarian logic. It's the logic of economics. Input leads to output. Effort leads to reward. Practice makes perfect. Pursue self-interest. Maximize your utility. Impress the world. What David Brooks calls resume virtues, Paul calls the works of the flesh. The second category of virtues is what Brooks calls eulogy virtues. These are the sorts of virtues that others extol in us. The kinds of virtues that extend blessing liberally, extravagantly to others. The kinds of virtues that have an impact beyond our own lives. The kind of virtues that expand the capacity of others to find meaning and fulfillment in their lives. These are the kinds of virtues that get talked about at our funerals. Things like kindness and bravery and honesty and faithfulness. And the logic of eulogy virtues, Brooks writes, is an inverse logic. It's a moral logic, not an economic one. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer your desire to get what you crave. Success leads to the greatest failure, which is pride. And failure leads to the greatest success, which is humility and learning. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. If the resume virtues are the fruit of the Spirit. The question we're asking here, the question I am putting in Paul's mouth, though I don't think I'm misrepresenting him, is what is the point of our religion? There are those who will look around at the world. And all of the evils that have been perpetrated throughout history in the name of religion. Our religion, other religions, they'll recognize all the evil that has been been done and just conclude that we are better off. The world is better off without religion. But really, that's only a dodge. Around the question. Even the theologian Paul Tillich, a great theologian of the 20th century, once said that to some of our misguided uh, understandings of God and religion, atheism is the right theological response. Some religion, maybe a lot of religion, produces more Brussels sprouts than it does fruit. Produces bitter people with vinegar hearts. And because of this, religion's detractors will always be able to find what they're looking for. They will find religion out there that has made religion the point, which is another way of saying religion that misses the point. Remember, Paul is not anti religious, Jesus is not anti religious. But I think they would both agree in saying that religion is not the point. It is not an end in itself that we are pursuing. It is a means to an entirely separate end. The point of religion is what is going on within the religion. Jesus, who also liked to use the metaphor of fruit, said the tree is known By its fruit. Look at the fruit that it's producing, and you will know what sort of tree you're dealing with. And Paul wants the church to know that what it means to be the church is not adherence to the law. What it means to be the church is not merely religious observance. What it means to be the church is it's not cultivating religion, but it's cultivating what is going on within our religion, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, the good and the beautiful produce that comes about when God is at work in us, that when, when Christ's love is shaping us. Brian McLaren writes that the church exists to form Christ-like people, people of Christ-like love, It exists to save them from the great danger of wasting their lives, becoming something less than and other than they were intended to be, gaining the world, but losing their souls. We are here, the Christian church is here not to build an institution, not to to extend the lifespan of Christianity in a secular Western world, not even to turn more people into nominal Christians. We are here to bear one another's burdens. We are here to bear with one another in love. We are here to bear good fruit in the world. We are here to set aside the pursuits of the flesh so that we can make way for the fruit of the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. Whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all. Amen.